Welcome to Sermons by Brad Tuttle. We are so glad you decided to join us today. We know you're going to be encouraged, inspired, and challenged by this powerful sermon. Okay, as I said last week, and I said in some of these previous sermons, drop your denominational upbringing. Uh, what we do is we come in, and there's certain topics, and we sometimes we don't even study them. We just carry them on from the denomination that we're in, and that's what they tell me, that, and that's what I believe. And we never study the scriptures ourselves to really find out, I don't care what the guy says, what's the Bible say? So we're going to title this today, Caught Up Together. And we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. And if you have a pen and paper, take notes. There's a lot of interesting things in the Greek words uh, that show us particular nuances of the word, English word that we use. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. He just got done, and remember, Apostle Paul is, he's getting all this inspired by the Holy Spirit, right? So this is, this is remember I talked to you, there is no new revelation. If you want to use the proper word, use the word illumination, because you're not getting a new revelation from God, no matter what anybody t- tries to tell you on TV. It's not a new revelation. It's all the revelation we need is in the Word of God. So we get illumination in our mind by the Spirit. Paul got new revelation. So everything he's teaching them is new revelations, fresh from God. It's from the Lord. Um, He's talking to them in chapter 4 about sanctification, about love laying down sound doctrine, right? That's what Paul did for us in the epistles. So he's laying down sound doctrine, and then he comes into verse 11, and make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, and attend to your own business, and work with your hands, just as we commanded you. How many say work's a good thing? So that you will behave What's the word? Behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. And now he's going to go on with some more sound doctrine to teach them something. And that's where we come into our verses. So we're going to read those together, verses 13 through 18. Everybody ready for this? Okay. It says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead, great phrase here, this doesn't say, and the dead will rise, it says, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be, somebody say, caught up, caught up together with them in the clouds to meet who? To meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Verse 18, 
This is the whole point of him teaching this. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So this is our, this is our, our staple um, passage on the rapture of the church. But I don't see the word rapture. Okay, we're going to see if this is even real or not, right? Um, so where's rapture in there? I don't see it. Is there really a rapture? Well, we'll talk about that. All we see is this word caught up. Um, they had an ignorance about this. And because what, what Paul's doing here in laying down this doctrine, he's trying to comfort these people. He's trying to let them know that I understand that your dead ones, your dead family members or friends, I understand that they died, and I understand that you're going to grieve, but you're not supposed to grieve like someone who has no hope. You grieve, but yet you still have hope. Hope that you will see them again. So he's trying to help them here. I don't want you to grieve in such a way that it's without hope. Um, so he's trying to give them comfort here. Spurgeon wrote this. He said, tears are permitted to us, but they must glisten in the light of faith and hope. Jesus wept, but Jesus never repined or to be fretful or low-spirited through discontent. We too may weep, but not as those who are without hope, nor yet as though forgetful that there is greater cause for joy than for sorrow in the departure of our brethren. So even for any of you that are in here who have lost loved ones or friends, this should bring you great comfort and hope, what you're going to hear today. So verse 13 says, but we do not want you to be uninformed brethren. So this is Paul's way of calling attention to what he's about ready to teach. But I do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. So that phrase, those two words, are asleep, in the Greek, it's the word koimao. And in this context, it's referring to those who are dead and specifically to those who are dead in Christ. And this is never used, that Greek word's never used in the New Testament of anyone but believers. So that Greek word spelled K-O-I, Koimao, K-O-I-M-A-O, Koimao. It's never used in the New Testament of anyone but believers, and it's talking specifically about those who are dead in Christ. This is what's great about it. It shows that death for the believer is nothing more than sleep. That's, how, that's why he uses the phrase. It's nothing more than sleep. It's not, it's, it's, uh, here's an illustration. When your loved ones fall asleep, you don't run to the phone and dial 911 for emergency service for them. You know that they are quietly resting and they will awaken again and that you will have contact with them again soon. That is why the New Testament regards the death of believers as nothing but sleep. So that's referred to as sleep. Not, this is not soul sleep. That's a false doctrine. That's a false teaching. This is not that. Uh, so he goes on to say, but we don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest. The word grieve, lepeo, it means to, and tell me if this ever relates to any of you, the word grieve means to feel pain. Pain of body, pain of mind, so to experience severe mental or emotional distress. It can also refer to physical pain, which may be accompanied by sadness or sorrow. So Paul writes to the saints at Thessalonica, um, who had lost loved ones, don't grieve as someone who has no hope. But instead, take this doctrine I'm teaching you, be empowered by it, um, so you can have a sure hope of future glory. Amen? Amen? 
So there's comfort in this. It's comforting me right now. So again, I understand funerals, but they don't necessarily always have to be somber. Because if that person truly is in Christ, there should be a rejoicing there. There should be some happy music. Because their spirit went to heaven and they will eventually meet up with their newly redeemed, resurrected body. Amen? But it's not a constant bummer. We have to have hope. That's why he's giving this to us. The word of God says, don't grieve as those who have no hope. Have hope because you will see that lost loved one again and probably very soon. So don't grieve as do the rest. Here it means unbelievers who have no hope. So only us. How many believers do I have in here? If you do, we're the only ones that have a sure hope of heaven after death or of eternal life. We're the only ones. The illustration says, nature will have her due. This is great. Tears will fall and hearts seem near to breaking. Nowhere does God chide the tears of natural affection. How could he, since it is written that Jesus wept? But he sets himself to extract their bitterness. Sorrow you may and must, but not as without hope. Those who die in Christ are with him. They are said to sleep, not because they are unconscious, but because their decease was as devoid of terror as an infant's slumber. That's what it means when you leave this earth. Um, it's not the end of anything. It's the beginning of everything for, for us as believers. We have eternal life. Life is going quick. My birthday's Friday. I'll be a certain age. And man, it's gone fast. A lot faster than I could ever imagine. So y'all that are here, serve God with all your heart because it's coming quick. Right? It's coming quick. Verse 14 says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. So the phrase, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, those are the foundations of the gospel that we believe. So for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. So again, he continues to further alleviate their fears. He reassures, he reassures believers that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. So your dead friends, your, your, those that are sleeping, he's going to, God's going to bring them with Jesus. Somebody say amen to that. At the rapture, God's going to bring all believers, living and dead, back to heaven with Christ. At the rapture, God will bring all believers, living and dead, back to heaven with Christ. John MacArthur said, and hear this really clear. Some people take, um, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. They're, they're, they're taking that and trying to refer to that as, there is no rapture, and that when they that there, there is no point of rapture, trib, and then a second coming. They're just taking on. There's just a second coming. Um, so they're 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 not looking at it when it says we'll bring him with those who have fallen asleep. They're not looking at it as if the, in the sense that this is the rapture, and he's taking them to heaven. Um, I hope this makes sense. MacArthur said, "What the passage God will bring with him does not teach is that the spirits of dead believers." immediately return to earth with Christ for the establishing of the millennial kingdom. Is that confusing to anybody? So there's going to be a time of uh, tribulation, 
Will we be in it? Will we not? I don't know. We're going to talk about it at the end. Um, don't get caught in your denominational thinking. Um, so he says, what the passage God will bring with him does not teach is that the spirits of dead believers immediately return to earth with Christ for the establishing of the millennial kingdom. That view places the rapture at the end of the tribulation and essentially equates it with the second coming. It trivializes the rapture into a meaningless sideshow that serves no purpose. So is there a a, a catching away and then is there this seven-year period of tribulation, which we'll talk about, and then is there a second coming? Or is, or is there a, or is, is all that at the end of the tribulation, because there truly is a tribulation coming, seven-year period? Is it all at the end? How does all this fit into what the Bible talks about happens, okay, at the end times? So verse 15 says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. Because everybody in here would love to not to be in the tribulation, right? Um, everybody in here, so I think sometimes we just, we just so hope that the rapture's before, because I don't want to go through all that. But maybe God intends for us to go through all that. Or maybe God intends for us to go through half of it. So maybe we're going to be in the midst of this still on earth when all this stuff is happening. I don't know. We'll see what the Bible says. Verse 15 says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So by the word of the Lord, he's introducing this new subject like I talk about, and it's a revelation he received from the Lord. This is not his idea. This comes with authority of the Lord. So the phrase, we who are alive, indicates Paul was living. So Paul was even thinking he was going to see this happen in his lifetime. And you are hoping that happens in your lifetime, right? Especially as we get older. You know, when's this going to happen? I'm, I'm... Getting towards the end of everything. Is this I don't want to I don't want to die. I don't want to die. I want to be taken. But again, here's the thing. If you die, you're still gone. You just gotta meet up with your body later. You understand what I'm saying? Yes. I mean, I know it'd be cool to be here and lose gravity. That would be awesome. I hope it happens so I can feel it. Uh, but Paul was thinking, even back in his day, because everybody's saying it's coming, and people try to mark it out, you know, they'll count the years and look at the Old Testament scriptures, and they'll try to, what's going to come in, you know, in 2025. No one knows that. No one can determine that. God's not going to make it so anybody can figure it out. So don't buy into that stuff either. You don't know when it's going to. It could happen right now as I'm talking. You're all going to be on the way going, he was right. (laughs) So you don't know when it's going to take place. Paul thought it was going to take place while he was still alive. He had this hope that it was, happening, it was going to happen when he was going to be caught away, that he wouldn't see death, but we know that Paul saw death. So we can find a number of scriptures that support the fact that Paul had a fervent hope and expectation that he might be among those who were alive at the coming of the Lord. So I hope I am. If I'm not, big deal. I'm still going where I'm going. You know, it's still, I'm still the same end place. For this we say to you, but if you're not saved in here, Truth of the matter is, if you're not saved, if you die in your sins without Christ while all the rest of us are gone, because you're going to be here with everybody else that didn't believe. And now you're going to have to go through all that stuff that you can read about. It, and we'll maybe talk about the tribulation in one of these sermons. But you're going to have to go through all that stuff. And maybe in the middle of it, you'll sometime through there, you'll confess Christ as your Savior. But I wouldn't want to go through a day of it. Somebody say amen to that. 
For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, so new revelation from God, by authority of Scripture, by authority of the Lord, he says that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord. So this word coming, it's the Greek word parousia. It's a combination of two Greek words. First word is para, which means with and alongside. And the other Greek part of it is ousia, which is being. So it literally together means to be alongside. So it says that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord. So parousia conveys the thought of an arrival or coming of a person to a place plus the idea of their presence at that place until a certain event transpires. So that's why we talk about the original languages. In that word, in that Greek word, it's talking about an arrival or a coming of a person. Who's that person? Christ. To a place, plus the idea of their presence at that place until a certain event transpires. So that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord. In other words, the church's great hope is the arrival of Jesus Christ when he comes to bless his people with his presence. Amen? More than 500 verses throughout the Bible talk about this. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Paul's saying in essence that there is absolutely no way those who are alive and remain will precede those who have already passed on. We're going to meet each other together. That's awesome, right? Um, we're not gonna we're not gonna go quicker because we think we're higher and they're lower. Um, we're all they're already there. They're they're gonna meet up with their newly resurrected bodies, but we're all gonna meet up together and we're gonna meet the Lord. It says in the air, in the clouds. Can't wait. So the revelation that the living believers will not have any advantage over dead believers at the return of Christ should bring. Hope. Should bring hope. We grieve. It's okay that we grieve. We're human beings. It's built into us to grieve, but we don't grieve without hope. We grieve with the understanding that there's hope that I will truly, if you really believe the Word of God, I will see that person. I will be with them again. We're going to be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. So he's teaching that both classes of believers at the Lord's return will share the same destiny at the same time. Amen? So when's all this happen? I don't know. We'll talk about that later. But don't hold, your, don't hold on to your denom. I keep saying that because I know people are. Verse 16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Descend, for the Lord himself will descend, means to come down or go down. And so to descend from a higher to a lower place, it means to move downward. In this verse, it describes, obviously, Christ's descent from heaven. Because where's Jesus right now? Where is he? At the right hand of the Father. He's in heaven right now, right? So it says also, with a shout. Greek word refers to a shout of command or an order. Um, the idea is a loud, authoritative cry, often uttered in the thick of great excitement. But it never says who gives the shout or to whom the shout is directed. It just says he's coming from heaven with a shout and with the voice of an archangel. Uh, an archangel is a, uh, 
If you break the word down, it means chief and angel. So it refers to the first or highest angel, the archangel, the leader of the angels. Um, so he's coming with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. Obviously, a trumpet is a wind instrument. So they're talking about a legitimate, a literal trumpet here. Um, so Jewish people were familiar with trumpets, and you all know what a shofar is, right? Uh, and shofars, which were used to declare war. <laughs> we will not be blowing a shofar in here. Um, <laughs> Jewish people were familiar with trumpets or shofars, which were used to declare war, to announce festivals, to announce seasons, to gather people, to, to announce the giving of the law. So the trumpet denotes an instantaneous, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye event. So he's coming back with a shout, with a voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And again it says, and the dead, somebody say in Christ, and the dead in Christ will rise first. In other words, Paul's, he's equating his earlier description of those who have fallen asleep. So this is phrase, in Christ, which indicates, hear this, it indicates that although they are physically dead, they are still in spiritual union with him. Death cannot sever a believer from Christ. You're always in union with Christ. Somebody say amen to that. Glory to God for God making a way for us to be saved who are truly saved. And I will honestly say this. There's a lot of churches. There's a lot of... Listen, if someone's sitting in a 40,000 seat church with someone who's preaching to them bad theology... It's preaching to them a false gospel. And they go there, on, it's continually on Sundays to listen to this. Probably there's going to be many people in that church that if the rapture came on that Sunday morning would be left sitting in that church thinking, someone has deceived me. That's why it's so vital that we're telling people the truth. People hear the truth. And it says that they will rise some 123 times in a New Testament leans, means to physically stand up or make to stand up as describing a change in physical position. So, and the dead in Christ will rise first. In verse 17, then we who are alive and remain, here we go. This is the part we really like. We'll be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord, I remember when I first got saved, I told you just before, I first got saved, the first book someone gave me, the title of it was 666. And uh, man, they scared me into staying strong with Jesus. It's like, then I got another one, <laughs> then I got this video series called, what was it called? Thief in the Knife, Thief in the Night. And um, so, man, I'm watching all these things about, you know, the one person's on the phone and their husband's laying in the bed, and the husband's gone, and she's still on the phone, and it's like, I'm left behind. So then it goes through all the stuff they got to go through, and, it, and it's like, I'm kind of glad they pushed that on me, because I thought, man, I because from the moment I got saved, I was so glad I was saved. I thought, man, if this stuff's real, I am glad I'm not going to go through this stuff. Amen? But again, I believed all of it, because when it was going to happen according to the end times, I believed it, because that's what the church said. That's what they taught. Now I believe what I believe because I know what the Bible says. So it says, Then we who are alive and remain, those believers that are still on earth, will be caught up together with them, or the dead in Christ, in the clouds to meet the Lord 
in the air. So, does Paul really describe a rapture? We never hear the word. How can we say there is a rapture? We never hear it. It's not in the Bible. I just see caught away. What does that mean? So, is there really a rapture? So, in addressing the argument, it behooves us to keep in mind that the Latin Vulgate was the primary Bible translation utilized for a thousand years preceding the Reformation. That was the main translation, was the Latin Vulgate. In the Latin Vulgate, I'm giving you guys some good ammo here. In the Latin Vulgate, the Greek word harpazo was translated, I don't know if I pronounced this right, but rapamu, which is clearly related to our English term rapture. Everybody get that? So in the Latin Vulgate translation, the Greek word harpazo was translated to rapamu, which is clearly related to our English term rapture. So for anybody in here who is a a detractor of the rapture, who argue that the term rapture does not appear in the Bible, so there is not one, are obviously unaware of the prominence of the Latin Vulgate translation in church history. That's why it's good to study things and to look at things. So there's a a purpose why it's here. Um, The more important question is, what does the original Greek word harpazo actually mean? So it's a verb, and in the original Greek it conveys action. So what is pictured by harpazo or rapture? Well, it's what we just learned. It talks. It uses the phrase, we will be caught up. We will be caught up. It re- re- relates back to the Latin Vulgate and the word used there and the word rapture. So it relates back to the fact that although it doesn't say rapture, we know that rapture has been there before, but in the Greek it's the word harpazo, which means to be caught up. Does that make sense? So it means to snatch up or snatch away to seize or seize upon, to steal, to catch, away or up, to pluck, to pull. Harpazo means to take suddenly and vehemently, often with violence and speed or quickly and without warning. Isn't it interesting all the words that Paul decides that he's led to use in the Greek? The idea is to take by force with a sudden swoop and usually indicates a force which cannot be resisted. So when you're being taken out of here, you're not going to want to stay, but you're not going to be able to go, I'm not going you're gone. So the picture of individuals being snatched away and snatched up in a way is seen in other New Testament verses. We look at see this in uh, Acts 8.39, where the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. Same word there. Snatched him away. Translating. Took him. Gone. Took him from one place to another. God wanted this eunuch to be saved so bad that he snatched Philip up from one place and took him to another place. 2 Corinthians 12 talks about Paul being caught up to the third heaven or paradise. So there we see this snatching away in other aspects of the word of God. So those who are alive and remain will be caught up, harpazo, raptured. And not to be too um, technical here, but I, this is what really makes me excited. So it says, we'll be caught up together with them in Christ. So the word caught up, the word together, is a specific word called, the Greek word is hama. It's a marker of simultaneous occurrence at the same time denoting the coincidence of two actions in time. In other words, hama describes a point of time which is emphatically 
simultaneous with another point in time. So we're going to be caught up together. All of us are coming together at a certain point in time, right? Caught up together with our dead loved ones. In verse 17, Hamad depicts a simultaneous snatching up of bodies of both believers who are still alive and believers who had fallen asleep in Christ. And just think, you're going to see them, you're going to meet them in the air. Just think about the things you're going to talk about on the way. <laughs> about what's gone on while they were gone there and what they were doing and what you were doing on earth. And uh, just think about that conversation, amen, if there is one. Or we're just so ex- stinking excited to get out of here that we don't have anything to say. But glory, hallelujah, I made it, amen. Probably going to be the greatest sigh of anybody has ever heard is when we, we when it comes and we're snatched and we're taken out of here. It's probably going to be, ooh man, I made it, <laughs> amen. <clears throat> so it says we will be caught up or harpazo raptured together with them. So the word them or the word with with them. This is really really interesting. There's two Greek words for the word with with them. So one Greek word was pronounced soon speaks of intimacy in contrast to the other Greek word for with, which is meta, which speaks of nearness without the idea of intimacy. There's a great illustration in the Bible that shows the difference between the two. So this one is talking about intimacy, which in regards to us. So here's the illustration. The believing thief was crucified, the believing thief was crucified physically, but more importantly, spiritually with or soon Christ. So he was, um, he was in intimacy with Christ, right? Not just in proximity. While the other thief was crucified physically next to or with, that's the word meta, with Christ. So he was, the thief that didn't believe, it's just referring to him being in proximity to Christ. The thief that did believe is saying that he was in intimacy with Christ. So one is intimately with him, and one is only in proximity. And uh, in other words, the first thief experienced intimate union with Christ, while the second experienced only close proximity, the result of which was eternal separation from Christ. So it's not a matter of just liking to hear Jesus' music or... Uh, maybe coming to church because you like some of the good vibes you get, or because if you're not saved, you're you, there's just a proximity issue here. But if you're saved, you're in intimacy with Christ. And there's going to be a lot of people who are just with Christ in a sense of close in proximity, not in a spiritual sense, but just physically, um, and they're not going to make it. Is that okay? Does that make sense? So we'll be caught up together with them in the clouds. These are literal clouds. Um, so it means to meet the Lord in the air. To meet indicates uh, that the Lord will be coming from one direction and we're going to be coming from another one to meet together in the air. And what a glorious day that's going to be when we're going to meet Christ in the air. Amen? Coming together. And so shall we will always be with the Lord. And then it says in verse 8, Therefore comfort one another with these words. So there's coming a day, whether you have passed or whether you're here, that at that trumpet, At that call, there's going to be a snatching away of all those that are here and a rising of all those who have passed, and we're going to meet the Lord together, together at the same time in the air, in the clouds, to be with him forever. Amen? The rapture is not the second coming. There is then a second coming, which comes after the... Well, we'll get into that. 
<clears throat> or maybe it isn't. I don't know. So with all that learned, and again, this is not, I'm not doing this because I, was, I got saved and went to a Pentecostal church. I could care less. I, I want to know what the Bible says. And when I talk to somebody about it, I don't want to just go up to them and they say, well, how do I know? And I just go, well, I know because, you know, that's what the, you know, I was taught and it's not. You got to know what your belief, what your stance on this has got to be backed by truth. So when does the rapture actually take place? The most commonly held view among evangelicals is that the rapture will be pre-tribulation. So what is the tribulation? We'll preach on a little bit here now. The tribulation is a future, this is biblical, a future seven-year period of time when God will finish his discipline of Israel and finalize his judgment of the unbelieving world. And it is coming in a fury. It's coming. I'll, we'll, I'll preach it and I'll talk, we'll talk about it in even a more um, detailed aspect. It is, it is God un, unleashing his full fury on this earth. And you don't want to be here. People are going to be dying by the hundreds of thousands at a time. Starving, burned. Someone says, well, why would a God, why? because you don't, if, you, if, you, if you go leave here and go, why would God do that? That's a mean God, then you don't understand the Bible. Right. He's given everybody a time and a chance to place their faith in Christ. Everybody has an opportunity. So the tri- tri- pre-tribulation view sees the church. The church is made up of all born-again people. Yes. That's the true church. The true church is not the Roman Catholic Church. The church universal is not the Roman Catholic Church. The church universal is all, the church made up of all those who are part of the body of Christ through believing in Christ as their Savior. Somebody say amen to that. So the pre-tribulation view sees the church made up of all those who have trusted in the person and work of Christ that they will not be present during the tribulation. That's what the pre-trib view says. We will not, we will not, be, we will not go through those seven years. We are snatched out of here before that takes place. How many would love that to happen? So the pre-trib view holds that Christ does not actually set foot on earth, right? We're going to meet him in the air. He's not coming back for his second coming to now establish his millennial kingdom. We're going to meet him in the air. That's going to come later. We're going to meet him in the air at the rapture. So it's not that he's actually setting foot on earth, but believers meet him in the air as we just described. At the end of the tribulation, the seven years, when Christ returns... Christians who have been raptured, this is the pre-trib view, will come with the Lord, this is the second coming. So in the pre-trib view, before the rapture takes place, before God unleashes his fury on this earth against all those who have unbelieved, can someone get saved during the rapture? Yeah. But you don't want to go through any of it. You're still going to have to go through the rest of it. pre-trib view says he'll come at the end and all of us who are raptured will be coming with him back to earth. So we have the rapture and then we have the second coming. That's in the pre-trib view. Um, so we have these differing views. Christians, um, we, we don't want to be confused about this, but the pre-trib rapture interpretation to me seems to be the strongest position because it takes a, hear the words, a literal interpretation of key scriptures bearing on the rapture of the church. But it's not clear. It's not a definitive thing. 
That's why people in the body of Christ, and let me say this very emphatically, your end time position has nothing to do with your salvation. This is not a salvation issue. You cannot believe in the rapture and be saved and go in the rapture before the tribulation. You can be a post-trib person and go as a pre-trib person has nothing to do with your salvation. What some Christian denominations believe and churches will teach people that if someone's not pre-tribulation, they're not saved. That's not true. They can still be saved and not believe pre-tribulation. So don't beat anybody over the head with that. It's not supposed to be divisive. It's not a salvation issue. Please hear that. Don't get haughty about it. You're pre-trib and they're not. That's just your position. They may not have that, but they may be truly saved. There are a lot of really smart theologians who are post-trib. I mean, guys who are brilliant are, don't believe that we're going to be taken out before the tribulation. They believe we're going to go through it. Or they believe that it connects together with the second coming. I don't care what they say. I don't care what anybody else says. I don't care what you say. I don't care what you say to me when you come up after the sermon and try to talk me out of it. I know what the Bible says. Now we have mid-trib people. The mid-trib view places the rapture in the middle of the tribulation. So we're going to go through, they say, the first three and a half years, it's not as bad a suffering taken out, and then the last three and a half years, whoo! I mean, it's God just total vengeance, Right? The other big one is we have the post-tribulation view where people say that they're almost connecting, combining the rapture with the second coming. So most advocates of a post-tribulation rapture, please hear me on this, do not interpret Scripture literally but allegorically, which makes the interpreter, not the Scripture, the final authority. So, What's wrong with the allegorical interpretation method? The allegorical or spiritualizing method of interpretation was prominent in the church for about a thousand years until it was displaced during the Reformation because the Reformers wanted to seek the plain meaning of Scripture. Allegorical interpretation, it looks for a deeper spiritual meaning within the text. That's why the, the, the interpreter starts to see this thing in it that's deeper than what, the, what, the, what, the, what that particular verse is really trying to say. It's a, very, it's a literal interpretation, so we, we're supposed to study it that way. We're not supposed to read things into it. Does that make sense? Allegory is a great, uh, it's a legitimate literary device. John Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress was an allegorical, allegorically written book, which we could not then literally uh, to interpret it literally would be to miss the whole point. It's like people, the story of David and Goliath. Instead of it just being David and Goliath, allegorically, we want to make it Jesus and the big demon world, or we want to make it into something that we, we look at it, and as we're looking at it, we get these ideas. They're not going to be from the Spirit because it's not of God, but we're going to look at it, and we're going to interpret it, this deeper meaning into it. And you see this a lot on television preachers. And that's why they get that's why everybody loves them because they read into something different and everybody just eats that stuff up. Sometimes scripture's supposed to be taken literally, and sometimes it's supposed to be looked at allegorically. Amen. So 
The problem with the allegorical method of interpretation that post-trib people will use to back up what they believe is that it seeks to find an allegorical interpretation for every passage of Scripture, regardless of whether or not it is intended to be understood in that way. So interpreters who allegory, who allegorize can be very creative, but they have no control based in the text itself. They're not letting the text say what the text means. They're reading into the text something that maybe they want it to mean or they think they see. So it becomes easy when you're doing allegory, you're looking at the Word of God allegorically. Um, they think that their own belief has scriptural support. But they're making the interpreter not the scripture the final authority. So they're going off of what they're reading into, what is meant to be literal, they're reading into something that they think has a deeper meaning. Does that make sense? So some things have to be looked at literally. Some things have to be looked at allegorically. What I just taught you in 1 Thessalonians 4 is very literal. We'll meet the dead in the air, the beautiful Lord forever. We're going to be caught up. You saw the Greek word, harpazo. That means there's a rapture there. There's a snatching away. It's very literal. But in these end time positions, people look at things and they look at things differently. I personally, um, so will the rapture be pre, mid, or post in a time relationship to the tribulation? I'll give you seven evidences. You don't have to write these down. Seven evidence, seven evidences that point to a pre-tribulational rapture. You didn't think you were coming to class today, did you? Um, and in my humble opinion, they create a far more compelling case than reasoning given for any other end-time view. Number one is the church is not mentioned in Revelation 6 through 18 as being on the earth. Church isn't even mentioned by name. I was talking about the tribulation. It's not even mentioned. So there's no thing of the church is there. Church isn't even mentioned in those chapters 6 through 18. The rapture is rendered inconsequential if it's post-tribulational. So why even talk about 1 Thessalonians 4? Why even have Paul write that in there if it, if it's, if it doesn't matter? Make sense? So the rapture is rendered inconsequential if it is post-tribulational. The epistles, Paul's teachings on life and what life is going to be and how to live as a believer contain no preparatory warnings of an impending tribulation for church-age believers. Paul never, never talks about that. Number four, First Thessalonians, what we just read, it demands, when you read it, it demands a pre-trib rapture. Why would Paul write it? I look at what he wrote. It says to me there's, there's going to be a pre-tribulation rapture. Number five, John 14, 1 through 3, parallels 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. We see again, just like in what we just read in the book of John, we see a same parallel idea there. Number six, the nature of events at Christ's post-tribulational coming or second coming differs from that of the rapture. The nature of events at Christ's post-tribulational coming differs from that of the rapture. So the second coming is different, and the events that take place is different than the rapture. And lastly, verse number seven, Revelations 3.10 promises that the church will be removed prior to Daniel's 70th week. And Daniel's 70th week is the seven-year tribulation period. So in my humble opinion, there's good backing for a trib, pre-trib view. Does this matter to anybody? If you're a believer, it should. So in my humble opinion, the weight of, and hear the words, circumstantial evidence makes a strong case for a pre-trib rapture. 
It's not absolutely there, but it's, there's good circumstantial evidence. And that's why we have these differing views, because if it's not just so emphatically there, people will read into things that they read their way to so, show it to be something other than pre-trib. We're going to disagree on these things, but these disagreements cannot produce division because then we're doing exactly what the devil wants us to do. So it should not cause division. In a church, you're going to have pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib. You don't fight over it. You don't disagree over it. You have your point. They have their point. You don't try to talk them out of their point unless they're asking you, show me what you mean. Now I've given you some stuff to show them what you mean. Um, But it's not to be argued over. It's not to get mad about. It's not to cause division. And one thing, like I said earlier, that we can all agree on without reservation or argument is that the bridegroom is coming back for the bride. Um, And we will be with all together in perfect union and harmony forever. So the bridegroom, who's the bridegroom? Who's the bride? The church. All the churches around here? No, the true church. All those who are made up of born-again believers. And he's coming back for a pure bride. So in closing... The Lord's coming is a comfort to the afflicted and the bereaved. No one's saying don't grieve, but don't grieve with no hope. We plainly taught those who sleep in Jesus are living still. So that dead body in that casket is not representative of what's really going on. There is a spirit world, and that person, understand, if I went right now, this weird body is going to fall to the ground, but the real me, I'm out of here. And then when I meet up with my body later, it ain't going to be like this. It's going to be looking even better than it is now, if you know what I'm talking to you. And you wonder how that could happen, but it is. So there are still real persons. And they're still in union and connection with Christ. Amen. Amen. And the dead, are, uh, the dead in Christ are raised first and then believers. We're all meet, then we meet together and we meet the Lord in the air. We're all caught up together. And like I said earlier, I'll say it again. Can you imagine what we're going to talk about when we see them? Oh, While we're going to meet Jesus. And then we're, then we're going to go once we meet him and then we're going to go to heaven. <laughs> Our, every tear's wiped away. And that ultimate longing within all of us is finally satisfied. Amen. We have made it. We are there. We're with the Lord. And it's going to be bliss forever and ever. And We're going to pray. Thank you for joining us at Sermons by Brad Tuttle. We pray this sermon blessed you, encouraged you, inspired you, and challenged you in your walk with Christ. Thank you for being with us. And come back and visit us anytime. God bless you.